Welcome to another episode of Complete Developer Podcast, the podcast by coders for coders about all aspects of creating your best life as a developer. I'm Will, the accomplished developer and aspiring software architect. And I'm Beach, the journeyman developer sharing my journey in development. Complete Developer Podcast is supported by listeners like you. We are now on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash complete developer podcast. White label applications are a different beast. Your code runs on your client servers and you may not have full access or control over it. It puts an entirely different set of constraints on how you build, deploy, and troubleshoot software. The commonly accepted practices of software development can get you into real trouble here if you're not careful. In this episode, we're going to talk through some of these so that you're prepared if you ever find yourself in this situation from a development perspective. But before we get started, Will, what have you been fighting this week? My workload keeps shifting. I started on one project that got interrupted for something else that got interrupted for something else. And I refer to that as my stack depth. And so my stress level at work goes up as my stack depth increases. Okay. Um, I think I'm at seven or eight now. It's been a little nuts and I'm not sure when that's going to get better. So we'll, uh, we'll see. Um, I did help you move furniture and I got help moving the server rack from the house. I got it out of the, the server room last week or two weeks ago and then got it cleared with work. I was like, hey, you want a server rack? And they said, well, how much? And I said, free as long as I don't have to assemble it. <laughs> and I'll yeah. deliver. And mm-hmm. so, obviously, they took me up on that. So, we dropped that sucker in there. Uh, was that Sunday? Yes, it was. Yeah, because Sunday, man, it was so hot. Like oh that goodness. storage unit. <laughs> um, it was, I don't know, I would say it was north of 110 in there. And there was no air movement. We weren't in there very long. What's What's horrible is that's supposed to be climate controlled. Yeah. Well, and it was climate controlled. Yeah, it was, you know, hot and humid. Yeah. <laughs> if you were simulating the jungles of Southeast Asia, that was a good place to do it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's true. I was I was looking for Forrest Gump to come out of one of those rooms anytime now. <laughs> Where's Baba? Anyways, how about you? I guess that was more of a Bill Clinton impersonation, wasn't it? Yeah, a little bit more. So, I've been uh, working with passing files back and forth through a gatekeeper API. Uh, uploading hasn't been much of a problem, but the downloading was because I couldn't get it to just pass through the API. Well, you wouldn't want to just like take the file as one chunk anyway. You got to almost stream it just yeah. so that if it does be, if, if it, you have to do that in case it becomes a very large file. Right. Yeah. And though I will say this, I, I, I got it resolved today. And uh, while doing so, I found a better way to handle the file downloads overall. So, it's it's going to improve our process. So, that's really awesome. Um, now, since we're talking about white label applications this week, I've got something white label for IOTs. This week for IOTs, I have a product from Develco. Actually, it's a whole suite of products that are their white label IoT. Develco is a company that makes Internet of Things products, and they have a line of white label products. They allow businesses, large and small, to put their logo on the products such as sensors, alarms, smart plugs, meter interfaces, and gateways. 
they also put the logo on the boxes and the inner sleeves. It's a really cool idea for companies that may be putting together a smart home or IoT solutions, but not building their own hardware. That's very important. Yeah. So I have a link to that in the show notes. You guys can check it out, especially if you've got a small business or something. That'd be really cool to do. Who's talking to us this week? Well, we grabbed a tweet from Christopher Smith says, saying, I just finished the at Complete Dev Pod episode on software versioning, and I'm surprised they didn't mention the spec at HTTP simver.org in the show or the release notes. Helpful stuff there, especially for developers in strongly typed languages. And the, the thing is, is when I did that, uh, I did that outline, I actually looked at that spec. I have no idea how that didn't make it all the way to that outline. If it was not in the the references, I wouldn't have put it in the show notes. I think maybe when I was moving stuff around, I must have. That must have got left out. Yeah, I don't know. Because that, <laughs> that's pretty big oversight. So Yeah, hey, Christopher, thanks so much. That is a great resource. Um, we appreciate the constructive criticism there, too. That's that's really good. We'll have to add it to the show notes now, uh, especially since Will says he he used it when when doing that. Yeah, that I, didn't, just I didn't use it as a, as a direct reference but i mean i was looking at it when i was thinking about what i wanted in the show so right yeah it needed to be in there and i, I thought i wrote it down but we'll we'll get it added for sure send us a dm with your contact information because we've got a water bottle just for you guys if you'd like your very own complete developer water bottle leave us a review in itunes or comment on the website or any of our social media we post all of our episodes to twitter facebook linkedin and google plus we're also on path instagram and tumblr you can also check us out each week on Facebook and Twitter Live when we talk about what's going on in the tech world and answer listener questions. Or join the conversation anytime via Slack by going to slack.completedevelopernetwork.com. There are a lot of things that are treated as a given in modern software development. Things like continuous deployment, having direct access to the servers where your software runs, being able to easily get instrumentation and logs, and even being able to control configuration. However, there is a surprisingly common type of application where you can't count on any of these things to be true. That type of application is a white label application, and it's the type that I work on every day. With a white label app, your clients may tinker with the database, integrate with things in ways that you would never expect, or even come to rely on bugs, features essentially. They may use the application in ways you never expected, and their business may be entirely reliant on misusing your application. In addition, they may well customize the application itself, changing code in the database, altering CSS, or even changing the data that you thought was static. It's an entirely different set of constraints and full of nasty surprises for the unprepared. In this episode, we're going to talk about some of the issues that you face during the development process of white label applications. And in the follow-up episode, we'll discuss some of the things that you or other developers may have to do when dealing with updating and supporting the applications. So to get started, we're going to talk about what is a white label application and why a client might want one. First off, it's an application for your clients to offer to their clients. Right. And this means that you don't usually have direct access to the end users of your application. This also means that you not only have to support the client's clients, and we're going to call those end clients for the rest of this discussion because otherwise it gets confusing real fast. Yeah, that, that's good. You have to support the support staff of your client and your own support staff while they support the, the clients. clients. Yeah. And so it, it gets a little more complicated and this makes a lot of things much more difficult because of the lack of control. The thing is, they're going to want it to look like it's their app, 
not right. yours. And that also means that it's going to have to function like their app, which may mean, uh, you know, they don't make the same assumptions you do. Mm-hmm. It, it may also have to integrate their other applications. Yeah. In fact, it's very, very likely that it will. You'll have to provide hooks to allow the client to customize the appearance and function of your application at appropriate points and try to keep them from doing it at inappropriate points. This also means that you have to take a lot more care with what you change in the application. You know, people say, oh, well, you don't change the GUI and you don't change the API, right? That's typical uh, publicly facing apps. They go, hey, don't do that. You know, use semantic versioning to -hmm. keep from getting burned, that kind of stuff. Well, when somebody is using your app and they're deeply integrating with it, they may be integrating with the public classes that you've got in a DLL. You may be thinking, okay, nobody else is going to use this DLL, but it's there. They can. And so you now have to be very careful about how you deal with stuff at that level. So it pushes your, your control surface shrinks. Also, they probably have additional code for their customizations. And this code may be quite extensive, especially when you consider that there may be entire other applications it's connecting to, like I was talking about before. And as I kind of said it earlier, this code may be extensive, especially when it has to connect with other applications that they have. These are expensive, both to develop and to modify. Yeah, and just to maintain, for that matter. It also means if the database behind the application is on-site, they may have integrated into it. Yeah, and the application guidance for most platforms tells you, do not integrate through the database. Right? Mm-hmm. Like they just beat that into your head. They go talk to it through the business layer. Well, if your app was written in .NET and their shop is a Perl shop, guess what? They're not talking to your .NET code. They're talking to the database. <laughs> That's what they're going to do. So you have to be prepared for that to happen. There is no safe space. This can include things like uh, changes to stored procedures, tables, triggers, even foreign key constraints. Yeah, there's no telling what kind of junk they'll do. They may also be directly referencing things like your style sheets and JavaScript in their other applications because people are lazy and they may want other systems to be consistent. So like they're using your app and it's customer facing, right? But they have some other app that's also customer facing and they want the styling to look the same and they just have a link going between the two. So in the other app, they reference your style sheets and your JavaScript. So you could break their other app. Why would... I'm sorry, I would just think that if they were going to have those customizations that they would have both apps pointing to one thing. Right. However, you're assuming people are sensible and future thinking. Oh, right. I, I, I forget that. You yeah. Know. That, I, like, I work with a really good team that well, here's to be that way. So. Here's the thing. Like, let's say you have a couple hundred clients. Mm-hmm. That will be two or three of your clients that do that. But those two or three are going to completely soak your support lines when they blow up their stuff mm-hmm. by doing something foolish. So you have to prepare for that to happen. That makes perfect sense. Yeah. So you have to future-proof the future-proofers. Yes. (laughs) And this also means if you have publicly available classes, they may be in use and the client may be inheriting from them, using them, Mm -hmm. doing all kinds of really, really screwy stuff with them that you would never think to do. This means that you can't change the internal component communications of your application as easily if those components end up having a public interface. You have to structure your application very, very differently. So the whole uh, three-tier model, like, oh, yeah, you need to do this, right? This was the big thing in 2008, 2010. And unfortunately, some developers are still kind of stuck on that. If you do that in this kind of app, 
they may be talking to your data access layer, not your business layer. So when you change database structures and go, oh, I fixed it in the business layer and it's the same there, you still broke them. Yeah, because they're not talking to the business layer. Right. Oh, I see what you're saying there. Yeah, it gets nasty real fast. Now we're going to get into how development changes when you're building a white label application as opposed to a regular application. Yeah, and the first thing is you may not be able to upgrade to the new hotness as quickly as you would like. And I'll say this as somebody that is writing code in Delphi, ASP.NET Web Forms. I still do you know, API and MVC for a lot of the new stuff, but for the existing stuff, I can't just go rip that out. Mm-hmm. I, I understand. And using Knockout.js. And I actually talked to a guy at a conference not all that long ago who absolutely sneered at me because I was using an old JavaScript framework. The fact is, is yeah, we've got people that are dependent on that. I can't just pull that out now. Yeah. Sorry. Well, I mean, I, in the majority of my job, am building Greenfield. Yeah. Uh, it's Greenfield to replace things, so I have to still deal with certain data structures, but I just got off the maintenance team. And on there, I'm dealing with stuff that, you know... Is ancient. Yeah. And when you're in that situation, you... You just basically have to pick the best out of the tools that you can use. Mm -hmm. And that is a very small subset of what is available. So you'll run into stuff. I mean, people will ask you to support systems that you would never think that would still be around. Um, Some of our clients' clients, for instance, use Windows XP. And that's a concern. Supporting that. It doesn't matter because they're not your clients. You can't say, hey, we're cutting you off. They're going to get mad. They can't pay a bill. The, The nice thing about... You know, old Windows XP like that is they're either air gapped from the Internet or their machine is so compromised you don't want them making a payment. (laughs) Right. So, you know, in that context. But you'll also have clients that'll go, "Okay, I still want my Windows Server 2008, not R2, Windows Server 2008, you know, the 10 year old operating system to be able to work. So stuff like, oh, I don't know, WebSockets. You're not doing that. Now, we just got to the point where we could do that. Mm-hmm. But you know, or um, clients still wanting 32-bit. We stopped supporting that. I think last year. I, I don't know how long I've been on 64-bit on my machines. You know, like that's just not something I, I think about. And that changes a lot of a lot of things because you've got to code for both. Oh yeah, I, I've I, I have seen these stresses when switching to a new server and things. The wrong things are, I guess, the wrong DLLs. Yeah, getting installed. Yeah, and we ran into issues, uh, for instance, in 32-bit Delphi, if you allocate an integer, the default value is zero. Do you know what it is in 64-bit Delphi? It's not zero. It's whatever was in the memory at that point. It didn't clear it. So, you know, and we're not sure why this happens, but that means that you have to go through the entire app and go, okay, this works a little different between 32 and 64-bit. Which one am I running? So it changes your diagnostics. So what all this means is that you're not going to be able to use the newer features, or you have to deal with things like polyfills. Yeah, especially in JavaScript. Yeah. I mean, that is so nice that they have that. Because <laughs> I wouldn't have any components in Knockout yeah. if, it, if it weren't for that, if I hadn't hooked that stuff in. Oh, trust me. I, I know about using older systems. We While I was there, we switched over to having... Chrome as one of the standards. Uh, and so, but we still have to support all the IE and edge users. Yeah. I think we're down to, um, I want to say it's like IE nine and IE 11 because nine is the Vista mm-hmm. one and 11 is, you know, Windows 10 if they happen to be using IE. 
eventually it will go away. Yeah. Thankfully. Uh, our new stuff doesn't have to support anything lower than 11. Yeah. Which is nice. It really is. But we still have to use polyfills for some of that, too. Yeah. And, I mean, even just, like, if you're trying to use ES6 in the browser, like, you're going to be doing that. <laughs> Regardless, but yeah. I mean, this goes back to th- there's just major features that are just not there. Mm-hmm. You know, this can also mean having to do a lot of hacks just to deploy and maintain your code at the client site. Right, and uh, we've had you know, we've had issues with this. Uh, for instance, the some of our clients were working with the SQL uh, OLEDB drivers or some older subset of them. Mm-hmm. And just trying to get those to even work where our app could talk to them was extremely painful. Yeah. And, you know, that's that's just the way it is with white label apps. You don't ever know what kind of situation you're stepping into. This can also mean running on really dicey old hardware with resource constraints. So, you know, situations where, I mean, you have a client that goes, hey, you know, this this is our production server and it has eight gigs of RAM in it. Why, why are you, you know, why are you having out of memory exceptions or why is this thing so slow? And like, there's nothing you can do mm-hmm. because it loads up, it fills up the RAM, and then it pages to disk and everything, you know, performance drops through the floor. You may have to deal with situations like that. You have to code in a far more defensive manner than you might be used to doing and further into the structure of your application. Yeah. And that means stuff like public methods. You got to validate stuff coming in. Yeah. You can't just go, oh, I only, you know, this is only getting called from this other place and that place validates it. No, it's public now. Like some, some goober can integrate with it. Because white label customers are customizing your software, they'll have a tendency to use or misuse anything publicly exposed, whether those are types, API endpoints, or even database structures. Right. And you'd be surprised what people can find. Mm-hmm. There's people that will look through the binary on a TLL, I'm convinced, and find the V table in there and go, okay, I can call this thing. Even though it's not in the docs, they'll figure out how to call it. Um, I We have a third-party component vendor for some of our stuff, and I needed to hook some of their events that weren't publicly exposed and weren't in the docs, and I found them, and I did it. And then I forgot that I'd done that. So when I asked for support, the support guy was just like, who told you about this? This is not supposed to be public. Why are you? And of course, it's still there because um, <laughs> it still works. But it became a public interface because it was reachable by me. And you'll have people do that. Now, in my case, I'm like, OK, I know that if I update, I have to test that. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I've got safeguards in place to catch that stuff. But your client's probably not going to do that. Right. And, you know. From a development standpoint, this is why you should make everything private until it needs to be public. Yeah. That's private and sealed. That's the other thing, too, because if it's, um, you know, if it's public and sealed, they can use it, but they can't abuse it. Yeah, that's true. That's very <laughs> right. True. Like they can't inherit from it. Yeah. Which, which may help. Um, and there was, you know, there's a lot of weird things you can do in .NET, too, that just completely ruin that anyway. But mm-hmm. that's neither here nor there. You know, what this is all getting at is that you can't make nearly as many assumptions about incoming data. You really shouldn't anyways, but, you know, we get away with a lot when yeah. we're only talking to other things in-house because the data may be coming from somewhere you don't expect or somewhere untrustworthy. Yeah, and that really actually happens if you're in a large enough organization. That that goober that you're talking about being at the client site, that goober is at your site. <laughs> Integrating with your stuff and not, you know, validating things, you know, passing, you know, 47 to that 
that Boolean field that made as an int because you screwed up and weird things happen and you don't know why. So <laughs> like you really can't ever do this anyway. But again, it's one of those things you get away with it. Is 47 truthy or falsy? Truthy. Truthy. Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I mean, you'll, you'll just see just weird stuff yeah. happen. So you do really do have to be a lot more careful, a lot more defensive. You also have to think more about how you change validation as you're no longer the only consumer of your code. So if you change an endpoint and say, okay, when this one thing comes in, that's supposed to throw this type of exception, right? You would think, okay, yeah, that's fine for the caller. But if the client is also calling it, they probably built their catch blocks based on what they saw come out or what you documented. You made a breaking change to the interface. And people don't think about that, but you know, that'll, that can blow up a system big time. You also have to change the way that you write error messages. You know, errors need to be descriptive, but you also need to be careful about changing error messages as some clients will base their code off the text of an error message. Yes. I can, um, I can see that. Yes, and I've seen it. Um, I've gone through code bases. That, that's one of the first things I do is I start looking for magic strings because this kind of stuff going on. You know, they'll they'll look for and uh, what's what's even more fun is when they look for an error number in the text. So like back in the day in Visual Basic, for instance, you had um error 91 object or with block variable not set. And there's there's probably some dude out there that did Visual Basic that's dying laughing right now the fact that I remember the error number, you know, or 53 which is file not found. Like I could just tell you those right off the top yeah. of my head because I still have nightmares about them. But <laughs> You know, there's the error number that hangs off that object, but then there's the message and the message also has the error number in there. I've seen so many people that will go, okay, just look for 91 in there. And that means it's basically a null reference instead of looking at the other field. So you've got to be just super careful just how you change stuff. Uh, this was also rumored to be the same kind of issue that Windows ran into. Because, you know, again, people customize Windows or they interact with it heavily. And that's why you don't have a Windows 9. Yeah, because there was an API that kicked out what the Windows version was or the descriptor of it, mm-hmm. and it was Windows space nine nine five nine eight nine eight SE. Right, that's great for the late nineties. You get around, and you go, okay, Windows eight is done. We're going to roll out Windows space nine. People are looking for that for ninety five ninety eight, and they're going to branch logic. And there's software that's been out there twenty years, and the developers are dead. And they looked at that. So the rumor is that Microsoft actually did not do that. And they skipped and went to 10 to avoid that because they're really, really stringent on backward compatibility for yeah. the most part. And so I would, I would believe that because it, it actually sounds like something a large company would do. Yes. And if you think about the way software was getting written back then, that was, I mean, there wasn't like a stack overflow. I mean, you're looking at, you know, gopher, you know, stuff and mm-hmm. like Usenet boards and whatever somebody had that worked, they they copied it in and that was that. So, yeah, they, they had to do that. But anyway, you, you've got to be real careful about the things you change, even if you don't think, oh, this is part of the public interface. This is right. just a string. But you also have to be careful about the spelling and grammar in your error messages. Yeah. Because you know, they may appear on the client system if things really go wrong. And it's, it's really funny. Um, Dave from Junior Developer Toolbox. Uh, he started working uh, at the same department I work in at the state uh, about a year ago now, I think, and um, maybe a little bit less than a year. But uh, when I was working on the very first project I'd worked on, we had some console logs for the Angular, 
And the, the lead UI developer and I got into a contest to see who could get the other one to laugh out loud while we were debugging. Oops. (laughs) (laughs) And so we, we would just, you know, post, put things in there. I think he put in there, I can count to potato. Yeah. And so me being a big, you know, 2001 Space Odyssey fan. I put in, I'm sorry, Dave, I can't do that. Which works until the guy <laughs> named Dave starts working there and starts, yeah. you know, getting pinged by management. Why'd you do this? Because yeah. so, it'll always show up like three <laughs> days after he starts. Well, the uh, the funny thing is, it was it was about a week or two after he started, a different team was doing some maintenance on that application. And he was just getting messages all day long about... You know, hey, what does this mean? What, why is it doing this? And he's like, I-, I wasn't even here when that was written. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you got you got to be really careful. Um, honestly, we thought we had taken all of those out. Yeah. But we we missed just the right ones for it to show up. <laughs> yeah, and I've I've seen some stuff that I I will not repeat on air. Yeah. That's been in error messages because somebody was really frustrated. And it's like this thing broke with some adjectives in front mm-hmm. and they forgot to pull that out and it got all the way out to clients. Now, not where I work now, but at a previous uh, previous gig and it made it all the way out to clients and you know, so some bank customers got F-bombed. Like, I, I, the thing is now having, having had that happen, thankfully I don't, I've been good enough to reserve those statements for Hangouts messages to you. <laughs> yeah. Well, and the other thing too is like you think, okay, this is way down in the data access library and yeah. I'm throwing this exception, but all my calling code catches it and I'm doing something based off that text and I know what that means. Mm-hmm. Well, there's several things going on there. One, it's potentially going to still propagate up if somebody called through some other method or it's just visible. <laughs> yeah. <you know? laughs> there's, Cause you got people poking around in your code too and it looks really unprofessional. So you got to be careful about that. Mm-hmm. Next, you have to change the way you deal with strings, dates, and format strings. While sanitizing user input was covered in the previous section, you're likely to also have to allow some customizability for the strings used in your application. Right. So one company's account is another company's customer. And they've got their nice little internal rules. Like if you go to QuickBooks and you set up a QuickBooks account, they've got like the verbiage in there and you can actually change the words you use. Oh, yeah. Um, I knew a guy that, you know, used very profane terms for different bunches, I, um, I, which was great until his accountant saw it and was like, I don't know what a, <laughs> like, is that a vendor? <laughs> is that a client? <laughs> I don't know. Right. But, the, but, you know, they'll do that. That's part of the whole white labeling process. Yeah. So. yeah that, that, that makes perfect sense. Uh, because even though we don't really build white label applications because you're the state. Yeah. So like it, they all have the same look. And this this gets even more interesting when you start looking at strings within a string. So, for instance, they go, hey, this customer doesn't exist. Most people would just put that as a string. You can't do that if the word isn't always customer. Now you got to format string and you got to pull it from somewhere. Mm-hmm. And you have to have a sensible default for people that just set up. And you have to not overwrite that default when you deploy again. Yeah. And potentially they may want to do it different for their clients also. So you see where this gets... Nasty. Mm-hmm. And then you have a lot of other stuff like how do you pluralize something? Uh, for instance, let's say you're writing an app for people that have farms. This dude over here's got cows or he's got, you know, cattle. This one's got sheep. This one's got chickens. The pluralization rules changed between those two. So you can't just add an S. So that gets nasty very quickly. 
<laughs> I can I, I've seen some places. And you don't want to recompile when you get a new client that has llamas. Well, I'll say I've I've seen places where that was not done correctly and you get really funny results. Yes. Seen um, some video games where they did that. Yes. Um, another thing, speaking of which, uh, is internationalization. You know, all your base are belong to us. <laughs> you that thing? Yeah, I remember that. Like, that was bad internationalization. There's certain things that you don't do, e- either in text or in images, because some images don't quite mean the same thing. Oh, yeah. In other places. Like, I remember an anecdotal story, which I think is probably crap, but it's, it's illustrative, that there was an area where... All the you know, most people were illiterate, and so what was in a can of food was pictured on the side of the can of food, which seems reasonable until you get Gerber baby food. <laughs> yeah, right. And I don't know that this is actually a real story, but that's a really good illustration of the kind of problems you run into. It's just like you, you just stuff happens that you don't think about, and yeah. it's your client's client, so you're not interacting with them, so you would not have warning. Uh, you may also have to deal with different time formats and date formats especially so if you're dealing with you know military or civilian you have to deal with time zones you have to deal with how they specify dates so if Mm -hmm. you've got a client in australia they specify a date different than the u.s does and you've got to make that right in all the places in the app and we've had what three episodes on dates and times yeah just that by itself is nasty oh yeah lastly on development you'll also have to deal with differences in local law yes um, not just the culture, but the law. Yeah, data retention standards and security standards change, as do the audit practices. They, they change per jurisdiction. Oh, yeah. I mean, a lot of companies are having to deal with some of the new laws in the European Union. Yeah, and that's spreading all over the place. But you'll you'll see stuff like uh, Microsoft ran into this. I, I keep using them as an example because a lot of the stuff at, at really big scale, they've, they've hit pretty hard. But... The border between India and Pakistan, like in Kashmir, mm-hmm. well, you know, they're showing a map of the world, right, on their app. And they're like, oh, it's just a, it's a PNG. No, it isn't, because it's a different PNG if you're in Pakistan versus India, because that's disputed territory and you don't want to tick off the government. Oh, <laughs> that's true. Yeah. I mean, it just gets, it gets gnarly extremely quickly. And there's just, like, you'll, you'll see stuff. You have to be prepared for everything to change. Mm-hmm. The clients and their end clients will expect this to be done well within your app. Yeah, especially if it's like taxes, oh, yeah. fees. You know, okay, like for instance, the U.S., right? You've got sales tax. You have luxury taxes on some goods. But you go to Europe, you've got VAT tax. And that's calculated completely differently. It's not just, you know, it's not just a percentage of the final sale. It's added mm-hmm. on, on every step of the way. I mean, there's just all these tangle of things that you got to think about that would never occur to you. And if it's your client's client, you may not get the warning. You know, you don't want to be the guy that built this thing and you're locked in and you can't change it. And now your client is trying to court some massive company overseas and it's their big chance and you're ruining it. Also, in some cases, you can be held liable for screwing up even if you don't live in your client's jurisdiction. Yeah, and there's some discussion about that with the GDPR, especially. And, you know, whether they're going to be able to sue or not, there's a lot of people that are going, oh, you know, our politicians here are not going to allow that to happen. They've allowed a lot of stuff to happen. They might, they might not, but you don't want to be the test case. Now, in addition to development, testing has to change as well. The most obvious thing is you have to be more thorough than you would be otherwise. You know, you 
just about have to test the entire application before release, not just the things that changed, because an update is an expensive thing when you're talking about white label applications. Yeah, this is more like the way updates used to be when you, you know, you got a CD duplicator Mm -hmm. or a floppy disk duplicator and you had to like manually spend time getting those things out and mailing them. If you screwed up, you redid that process. So they did more testing. Mm -hmm. That's kind of the way it is. You also have to test the failure modes of different components of the application. You don't control the whole architecture anymore. So the idea of if it hurts, don't do that. Probably not going to fly. Yeah. And you would be really, really surprised at the stuff that can fall down. For instance, if let's say they have an outbound email service and you call that, you know, with a HTTP request and that thing will take that request and go, okay, I'm going to send an email. I'm going to immediately reply to you that I sent the email. Well, if that thing comes under load, what happens to the caller? Does that service slow down? You have a cascading failure condition because some dummy may have put that thing on a e-machine with four gigs of RAM somewhere and said, oh, we're not going to have that much volume and they don't think about it. But you have to think about how it could take the rest of the system down. And you don't have that scenario because it's not your data center. You also need to test and see what happens when bad data gets placed in your database because you may not have as much control over those. Right. So like an email address, again, going back to the, the previous mm-hmm. example, some, you know, an email address is a string field in a yeah. database. There's not necessarily validation on that, right? So what happens when they don't put a valid email address in there and you're pulling it from the database, making the assumption that whatever wrote it there did it valid? If that takes your app down, you have a problem. You also have to test failure modes around configuration constraints, like what happens when a firewall port gets closed, possibly in the middle of the day during operations. We've had clients that have done this pretty regular. Every three or four weeks, somebody will you know mess around with their config and they go, hey, there shouldn't be outbound HTTPS from this box because nothing's on there. You know, it's just the app server. Well, that thing may be calling out to an uh, email service provider and doing HTTPS and now that's gone. So you have to provide useful error messages, messages, not just fall over. Mm-hmm. You need to test what happens when the database schema or other data structures are different than your application expects. If you can't make it work anyway, you need to provide some useful diagnostic error messages so that you don't cause more problems. Right. So you have to look and go, hey, does this column exist mm-hmm. sometimes? Or you have to generally catch it and go, okay, I'm going to read the error message out and do something with it so that they know what happened. Not, oh, it's an entity framework error and it, you know, mapping configuration, blah, 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 you know, barf out a stack trace. Like you can't do that on your client sites. You got to go, hey, yo dog, you screwed up and you deleted a column or you didn't update the database and you updated the app. You also have to handle this in a transient case. So like if, if they roll out the app first, you don't want stuff to fall over or get damaged while they're updating the database schema because they may mm-hmm. be doing that in parallel. Next, you'll have to test integration points far more thoroughly based on how your clients use them. Yeah, and this happens at the component level as well as larger integration yeah. tests. So you got to regression test the errors that your application emits to make sure they haven't been altered in a mm-hmm. way that will break the client. You also have to test what happens when multiple instances of your application are deployed. Yeah, um, this is something that I see a lot with people that write services. They're like, okay, I write a service, right? I'm I'm doing the microservice thing. Mm-hmm. But they don't think, hey, I'm going to have multiple instances of this thing. So they'll go, okay, read 100 records from the table, the first 100, because we're batch processing, right? 
and, and do something with them and then kick them out. But if you have two services, they're both doing that. Mm-hmm. And if you're not marking them in some way, the other service has no way of knowing. So just no. like architecture things will burn, burn you on this. And clients may think that they can just throw more hardware at it because, hey, they broke it into a service. Obviously, it can handle multiple instances. This can also include multiple instances in multiple versions. So if they have two instances out there, they may have shut one down and updated and they don't know about the other one. Mm, that makes sense. So you've got to be able to handle those kind of things within reason. You're not going to be able to catch all this. You'll have to test how individual components fail under load as well, as different clients will probably have different load profiles. Uh, you may, if you can figure out what the clients are doing um, or how they're using the application, have different testing profiles yes. for different clients. Yeah, because like, for instance, we have one client that gets that has gotten agitated with us in the past because they have a quarter billion rows in one particular table. It turns out that full text searches or not full text searches, but the um, like con- SQL contains searches really, really don't do nice things to your database server when you have a quarter billion rows and you're searching for the letter A. <laughs> it's on a public facing web. So you have those kind of things. You'll have clients that, um, you know, w- w- like we have one client right now that's actually having some problems with a system. And it turns out that it's a thing that they can actually afford to run manually. They can just click a button and do it and it works. We have other clients that if they had the same issue that these people have, they would be absolutely screaming. <laughs> so, but they have different load profiles. One thing that I have, I worked on for um, a side project I was working on was rebuilding some stuff. And I, I was part of what I was transitioning from VB over to ASP.NET was some search functionality. And the, it was a small office. I think three or four people worked in there and they got, when they're doing, I, I had them doing some testing for me, some UAT stuff, and they got really upset because they had been able to pull back all the records by just hitting uh, search without putting any criteria in in the old system. But because I built it properly <laughs> in the new yeah. one, they couldn't do that. And I had to go in and change the code to be, in my opinion, bad. bad. Yeah. Yeah. Um, to give them the functionality that they asked for, what they expected. That's not what they asked for, I should say. To give them the functionality that they expected. Um, and so they had gotten used to a, I really wouldn't call it a bug because it was just bad coding yeah. practice. Uh, but they had gotten used to that and they used that regularly. Right. So, they, they had an expectation of a low load situation. Right. And they, they really did. They, they didn't have a whole lot. Yeah, there. but you'll have one client that'll be like that and another one that will have a quarter billion rows. Right. It is not pretty when somebody pulls that many back from the database because especially if you are not careful with how the table's getting locked, mm-hmm. you can kill the entire system for everybody. So these are things you have to think about really a lot. Another thing you may want to do with your testing is actually provide your test suites to clients so that they can test in their development environment. So you roll their dev environment forward or their mm-hmm. testing workbench and then you run your tests in their environment. If it's business critical, your clients should be testing before they roll it out. That doesn't mean every client does. Some of them, they really love testing in production. Yes. <laughs> your test suite should be run on the client environment to check the assumptions. Right. Now, this also means that you can't damage the client environment with your tests. 
Right. So it's going to be a subset of your test suite, more than mm-hmm. likely. You can't expect all of your clients to actually test the software before rolling out. So you'll need to have a subset of those tests that can be safely run on a production environment just to make sure things aren't broken. Or to find them yeah. when they are. That's the big thing. Now, speaking of things that get broken in production, the <laughs> database is also a fun source of problems. This is this section here is actually a big reason why I tell people that a lot of DBAs really hate ORMs because this is my experience. Mm-hmm. You have a database that you're shipping with your app. You have to decide early on and agree with the client which parts that you edit and which parts that they can edit. That means you also have to provide sensible defaults, but you got to be really careful and go, okay, these tables, you don't screw around with it or this schema you don't mess around with. I think that's what we do in most cases. We've got to, well, actually, I know that's what we do, but we go, hey, look, it, this is our schema and we will change control this. And if you put something in there, the next update blows it away. You have to put it in your own schema. You're, you're really going to need to go over what's off limits. Yes. And, and check it. Yeah. Especially if you're interacting directly with the tables. Right. Which is one thing that ORMs are really bad about. Right? Mm-hmm. Like you can't abstract that away. Yeah. If they're directly doing that, and that's that's not giving the DBA any flexibility. Mm-hmm. You may have other areas where you provide sensible defaults, but the clients are allowed to edit. Consider wrapping these in views and stored procedures and calling those so that clients can transparently change these without breaking your application. Or at least they have the possibility to. In a realistic scenario, they're going to break your app. Yeah. But if you have direct table access they're going to break it a lot more often and there's Mm -hmm. not going to be as quick of a recovery. It also means creating structures that the clients can use and versioning them appropriately. Right. So you may say, okay, here's my schema that my app interacts with, but if you want the data from here, here is a version schema, you know, my app V1 that has all the stuff that you can talk to. You need to assume that the client DBA will do both amazingly smart things and amazingly stupid ones that you've never planned for. Right. And this can include stuff like writing bad triggers that cause exceptions to be thrown. Sometimes uh, that happens uh, even with your internal DBAs when yeah. a Be- developer writes a table and then all of a sudden it stops working. Yeah. <laughs> or uh, they write a you know they write a trigger and it just updates one row when it was a set operation yeah. happened. I mean, <laughs> like in SQL, that, that'll get you a lot of times. Uh, they can also do really clever performance optimization. So like, let's say you have some old crap code that's using cursors heavily Mm -hmm. and it's in a SQL server environment. The DBA may look at that and go, I'm going to fix that and make it return the same thing, but your app calls it. So you think that you own it. So when you deploy again, you override his changes. Now his server goes down because it can't handle the load of your poor code that Mm, just got overwritten. Um, You have to agree on this stuff early on for that reason. Provide reasonable default database maintenance scripts, but don't expect all clients to use them properly. Right. So things like rebuilding indexes, all that, you've got to give them the SQL jobs to handle that. Appropriate maintenance should be part of your setup guidance. That's just the way it is. Um, Next, you need sensible logging. This is something that I harp on a lot, but um, everywhere, really, uh, database especially. When an action is initiated from your code to the database, you need to log it. It's also critical here to set things like the application name, if you're able to do so, so that if the client is logging things or troubleshooting performance, 
they can tell who's causing the problem and they, they know where to look at that and stack traces. Yeah. But, um, if you're using entity framework, for instance, the old EDMX style, when uh-huh. you hook up a database connection, it puts a connection string in your web config or your app config. Yeah. But for the application name, it says entity framework. So what happens is, is all your clients hate entity framework. <laughs> because they think that's one of your apps because whatever that is, is breaking things and they're looking for entity framework. Well, there's not a service called that. You've got to get that right so that it gets in the logs, right? And you can actually tell where the problem comes from. Uh, okay. Okay. You also need sensible audit trails. Yeah. And that's different than logging. Mm-hmm. It is. If the contents of the table are at all important, you need to track who changes them. And this includes the account being used to make the changes the initiating application, and potentially the web user that did so. Right. So I don't like to mutate data unless it's through a stored proc for this reason, because I want to know the web user that kicked that off or the desktop user. And you don't have that context in the database unless you pass it in. Mm -hmm. The other fun thing that can happen is when they're troubleshooting, if they are doing a SQL trace, if you have that information, they can actually filter down and say, okay, this is what this app is doing. They don't have that information. They can't. Mm-hmm. Another thing that will happen is the DBA is poking around in there and they think they know what's going on and they forget the where clause and they do something to the table and then they blame you because yeah. either they didn't know or they ran some script, you know, they weren't paying attention. Stuff happens. So if you're logging it and you've got an audit trail, it says, hey, this was the logged in SQL user. It's some dude's name, not an application connection. Mm-hmm. Then, you know. Go get some dude and tell him he screwed up. That's that's very good. Next, you need to soft delete. Don't allow deletion of sensitive data and don't do it. Instead, flag the item as deleted and don't show it to the application. Previous actions are used for forensics and billing. Deleting a client doesn't remove the fact that they are obligated to pay their bills. Right. And so this can really burn you. Now, you do have to provide some means for clients to go, okay, I want to archive this stuff off. Mm-hmm. But, you know, straight up deletion, that's not the way to do that. I think the only place that we do any type of deletion is um, we have some change request stuff that it's literally just, it goes into a temporary table until it gets approved. It, it's approved, but it's not really, they're not going to not approve stuff. It's just so that the business team knows what's going on. Yeah, it's a holding table. Right. Um, another place where you will actually do a hard delete is uh, session information. Yes. Because, you know, it goes away. Your logs are also potentially ephemeral. Your audit trails are not. But your no. logs, you probably want to rotate that so you don't you know, kick the database over. Big clients are going to want to shard the database uh, between their clients. This can be really, really interesting. So they go, okay, client A is really, really, or in client A is really, really anal retentive. They do not want their data commingled with anybody else's because they're the best in the biz and they just, whatever. You'll get those kind of clients yourself anyway, but their clients are almost certain to have at least some of those. In that case, they don't want their data commingled. So you have to have some strategy for going, hey, not only do I get this out of the database, but which database do I get it out of? Mm. This is something that will come up. And sharding strategies are just a whole another can of worms that we probably should talk about sometime. We're not going to get into that right now. There's just a lot to that. Sometimes the database will be too big for all their clients. Or, you know, like I said before, they've got one person that's really picky or two or three. Or they're breaking it into geographical regions. There's all kinds of stuff like this that can happen. That. 
Yeah. And you got to think about it early in the app design, because if you try to bolt that on later, that's not very pleasant. Like, especially when your database has components within it that are talking to each other for doing things. Like one part is the, like the management, you know, upper, the top level stuff. And the other one is client level, but the top level piece talks to the client or vice versa inside the database. When you separate that out, you've got to do synonyms and you got to deal with all the crap that goes with that. Mm-hmm. And we've got some spots like that and they hurt. No. This is something that you really need to think about early on in your application design because it's painful to do later on. I, uh, I did some, some work. Oh, this is, this is one of the, the clients I had back when I was working with you that, uh, that I picked up and, uh, I was working on an application for their sales team. And so they had like regional sales people. Yeah. And so they wanted things divided up by the region. Uh, so it was easier for those people to just get their information. Uh, so yeah, that, that was interesting. Now, Thankfully, I was not the only person on that. I was just sort of a few hours a week building some, some of the API stuff for it. But yeah, I got to, I got to be part of some of those phone calls. That was cool. Yeah. Another thing that uh, can be very entertaining is how database updates occur when you have multiple databases. Yeah. Because if they're that big, they probably don't really want a lot of downtime. Mm-hmm. So your main database that talks to the other databases or however you've got that rigged also has to be fault tolerant if one database is ahead of some others in version. So finally, we're going to talk about CSS and custom JavaScript. If clients are branding your application, that probably means that they will want to include their own custom JavaScript and CSS. And that's exactly as painful as it sounds. <laughs> this means that they need a clear way to integrate without breaking things. So you have some CSS in your app, for instance, that is used for look and feel. And you have some that's used for functionality. Like I've got a screen that has got a you know, WYSIWYG editor type deal where you can click on some you know, certain areas and go in and edit. Right. Well, the border on that object, they can change the color. I don't care. Right. But the position, they don't need to. Right. And it's in the same CSS. Realistically, if you're allowing this, you need to ship application guidance on how to do it without problems. Yeah. And it's not just as simple as dumping some script and style tags on the pages and letting it go. So like you're pulling that from a database and you just dump it out there. There's a, there's places that you need to put it and there's places that you don't need to put it. And you also have to be careful about what happens when, let's say, for instance, they let their their guy in the art department put in custom CSS, but he figures out how to inject something nasty in there or you know JavaScript, and it's doing cross-site scripting attacks. Like Those are real issues that can come up. For CSS, you're going to want to make a sensible default that loads first and then allow your clients to override that with their own. This is the way that our website works with WordPress, where yeah. the theme... Child themes. Yeah, well... Well, there's child themes I could go in there and mess with, but uh, not child themes. I'm talking about the custom CSS. The theme has its own CSS that loads, and then you can put in uh, oh, custom yeah. CSS that overrides that. But then you you have that default, which is the theme. And so the you know the CSS is done that way, but so is the JavaScript. So you can yeah you can also uh, monkey patch the JavaScript the same kind of way. Mm-hmm. So what this does is it allows clients something that works well enough 
for a start, but it lets them extend things where needed. Again, with our customized CSS for our website on WordPress, that's what it does. The theme is, it's fine the way it is, but when we wanted to go do special things and set things up to look a certain way, um, unique to our site, that's when we would put in those customized CSS. Um, this also means you generally can't use bang important. And yeah. we, we talked about this in our CSS code smells episode. You shouldn't use that anyways. Yeah. Although you will find that if you're doing white label and there's something that you don't want to change because <laughs> it's important for some reason, yeah. then you actually do mark it as. Well, yeah. Well, that, that, that's probably the original intent, not the hacky way that a lot of people do stuff. That makes perfect sense, actually. Yeah. yeah. Or you do it way. in an inline style. Yeah. There's another way to get that to, mm-hmm. to happen. It also generally means styling elements through CSS for stuff that can change instead of directly setting style on tags or using JavaScript. So I see a lot of people do that in like jQuery code. Mm-hmm. jQuery spaghetti is the worst for people going, oh, I'm going to make that red. Set it to red. Well, that's great until somebody wants to set it to blue because red clashes with their background or something or yeah. you know, whatever. And they can't do that now without altering JavaScript. Which probably is compressed and minified. Speaking of JavaScript, for JavaScript, you're going to want to be very careful, especially about how you use popular libraries. As clients may try to use a different version, many libraries have a no-conflicts way of working with them that can keep you safer. Yeah, jQuery has this, and we use it uh, for that reason. So we don't do the dollar sign dot whatever unless Uh it's in a module. So you, you create the module and you pass in jQuery as a parameter and you alias it to the dollar sign just within that scope instead of at the page scope where yeah. if they brought in another version of jQuery, it breaks your stuff. Right. That's that's smart. Yeah. Now, we don't, aren't quite doing that everywhere yet, but when I find them, I fix them. Yeah. Your application needs a method of reporting JavaScript issues as clients can break the site with their JavaScript and then they'll blame you. Yes. I mean, I've seen stuff like uh, monkey patching the array object. Um, just really strange things that they'll they'll bring in. Or they, uh, you know, like the jQuery thing, for instance. And it, it gets really interesting to try to fix some of these things. Mm-hmm. Uh, or they bring in, you know, Moo tools or something else that uses the dollar sign. and That is the jQuery object. But they bring that in. And if you're not careful, you get burned by it. So you got to report JavaScript errors somehow. So you can catch it at the page level and, and do something mm-hmm. with it. But it gets really interesting because wiring up reporting of JavaScript bugs so that JavaScript bugs don't break the reporting using JavaScript, you have to really, really think about that carefully, especially like how you do that at the page level, again, where you don't have problems. The interesting thing here is going to be picking reporting tool for JavaScript and making sure it can run with what your client has. Going back to some of the hardware things. so Yeah. And again, if they have down-level browsers, there's a lot of stuff that may not work. So you may go, okay, I'm going to open up a WebSocket mm-hmm. and talk back to the server that way because they broke. You know, they're, they're likely to have broken the dollar sign object, so I can't do a post yeah. with, with jQuery. But, oh, by the way, they can't do WebSockets in this browser. I mean, you just never know. Yeah. And, and so you have to be careful what tools you even use to do that. Or use multiple tools to try to get it reported. So 
white label applications are tricky to deal with. They add a lot of constraints on the development that you don't have in many commercial and in-house software products. That said, they represent a sizable chunk of our industry that is mostly ignored. It's important to know what you're getting into before you start working on one, because of all these problems and some others that we'll talk about later. They can be challenging and fun to work on if you're well prepared. It's doing things in hard mode. A lot of the constraints you're going to deal with in a white-label application apply to varying degrees in many other application types as well. That's why we were commiserating over some of the same stuff. Even though you don't do a white-label app, you still run into a lot of the same problems. Mm-hmm. So uh, pretty much wraps it up. So what do you have for us for Tricks of the Trade? So Will's letting me do the Tricks of the Trade because I had an idea for this. But uh, after reading the, the outline here, um, especially the part about testing, where you really have to understand your customers because this applies to other areas in your life and in your work. Um, the, the thing I want to talk about is there is a time and place to call someone out at work, even management. Uh, public forums and social media are rarely that place. It may work if you're trying to get a corporation's attention, but doesn't do well if you are outraged at something at your job. Well, I've seen it happen all too often, and it's not just in the tech community. I've seen it in basically every area that I've worked where people will do this in a, a public way, and it's just, it never ends well. Uh, if you're upset about a decision that management has made, you want to talk to them privately about it, or if you need support, gather a group of coworkers, and then as a group, go and privately talk to management like that, calling them out in public makes you look petty and rarely ever is it effective. They are more likely to get defensive than to see your point of view. If your emotions do happen to get the better of you and you do call them out on a public place, then when they say, hey, it's over, drop the issue, do so. Yeah, and then apologize. Yeah. Not doing so shows a lack of respect. You may be right, but you haven't given them a way to save face. And and that's very important, especially at the management level. That's pretty much all I got. Stand by for Titanfall. If you have a question or comment, please email us at neckbeards at completedeveloperpodcast.com. Our theme music is an excerpt from Stand By for Titanfall by Pure Bells, available on SoundCloud and licensed through Creative Commons. The intro music for IOTs is Hillbilly Hip Hop by Jason Belcher. For references, show notes, and to sign up for weekly emails with extra tips and insights, be sure to check out the website at completedeveloperpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at CompleteDevPod and like our page on Facebook to keep up with news about the show. Catch us each week as we broadcast live, talking about what's going on in the tech world and answering listener questions. Learn more about all of our shows and groups by going to CompleteDevelopernetwork.com where you'll find links to Junior Developer Toolbox, Developer Launchpad, and our other communities. Thanks for listening. See you next time.